Welcome, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the Dark Knight, the Caped Crusader, the billionaire industrialist heir to a vast fortune, and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and screen TV and other stuff as well. We have a great show for you this week. We're going to talk about 1883, the prequel to the hit Paramount Plus TV show Yellowstone. Of course, we're going to review The Batman, the latest Batman adventure to hit the big screen. But first, I'm going to talk to Book and Film Globe contributor Michael Washburn about the 100th anniversary of James Joyce's Ulysses, which is ongoing and the book continues to be controversial. We'll be right back after this musical interlude. Purple fishes run laughing through your fingers And you want to take it with you To the heartland of the winter It's been 100 years, more or less, since James Joyce published Ulysses. Well, James Joyce didn't publish Ulysses since someone published James Joyce's Ulysses. And the book remains controversial and remains a point of debate even 100 years later. And uh, Michael Washburn wrote a piece for us about the 100th anniversary of Ulysses and associated controversies. And he's here with me to talk about it. Hello, Michael. Hi, Neil. Yeah. So you pointed out in your piece that... uh, you know, Ulysses was one of the earliest books, at least in the 20th century, to to be uh, banned and to be censored uh, widely. And it was it was not available in the U.S. and the U.K. for for many years. And, it, you know, it's no longer censored. No one uh, no one is trying to stop people from reading Ulysses. But yet it remains a political lightning rod. I guess my question is. You know, what about it remains controversial? Because few few books, you know, a century into their publication continue to be a, a subject of debate. I think that if you look at the history of this novel's publication from 1922 up to this moment, what you see encapsulated is how mores have changed, uh, standards of what is acceptable have changed, and things that people are sensitive to have changed radically. And so when the book was published in 1922 by Sylvia Beach and Shakespeare and Company. As you noted, it was banned in the US and UK. The reasons had to do with its its extremely explicit sexual content and profanity, vulgarity, and scatological content and things that people just found in poor taste and not suitable for the public to digest. And so it was banned. And this legal battle over the publication went on right through 1933, when this judge in New York, John Woolsey, wrote this very cogent and eloquent opinion explaining why he thought that none of the content was gratuitous and that Joyce was doing something very important. He was depicting the way that people in a certain milieu in Dublin speak and and act and conduct themselves. And that's not gratuitous titillation. that's, uh, That's social realism. And he made a very eloquent case for this. There's nothing in the book that, under the laws of the time, should be considered obscene in the sense of arousing, titillating readers for the sake of doing so. And so, thanks to this landmark opinion, Ulysses became available. And it's been this very challenging, difficult, esoteric work. There's so much in there that goes over my head, I'm not going to lie. 
And so I was honored to have the opportunity to talk to a scholar, Vicki Mahaffey, who's been studying the novel and teaching and writing about it for decades. And she, incidentally, full disclosure, led a James Joyce reading group in Philadelphia two decades ago that I was privileged to participate in as a journalist. I was writing for the Philadelphia City paper. I profiled her reading group. And it was so interesting. There were people who brought all different perspectives, but there was this consensus that it's a masterful work that rewards close attention and that you really have to have some patience with. And if you can spend some time and get a granular understanding of all the multilingual puns and allusions, it really is a fascinating work. So it's been this difficult, esoteric work. And in more recent times, the censorious approach to Ulysses is not so much about the scatological content, the swear words in it, but about certain things that readers today are highly sensitive to. How are marginalized groups being depicted in the novel? What, it, what are Joyce's attitudes towards women? Well, you use in your piece... Uh, the phrase, the patriarchal underpinnings of discourse. <laughs> right. Kind of a academic newspeak that, that James Joyce would, you know, laugh at. And that is a phrase, the patriarchal underpinnings of discourse, taken pretty much at random from academic commentary on Ulysses that you can find online. So that is the perspective that a lot of contemporary readers bring to the novel. Well, patriarchal this and that, how is Joyce asserting dominance and what is he imposing on marginalized members of society. So these are some of the things that readers today bring to bear. Well, I was going to say, that's, you know, how sort of post-structuralist literary critics read everything. So of <laughs> course, they're going to bring Joyce in, into that framework. Like, it's not surprising you find that analysis of any book. What I found yeah, more interesting was how, uh, you know, Maureen Dowd in the New York Times, who is not an academic or literary critic, used the occasion of the Joyce Centennial to um, compare the novel's language to what you what you quoted here, Trump's upside down utterances and, quote, Republicans showing how fringy and far out they've gotten. You know, unless you're talking about Irish Republicans <laughs> in, you know, in, in the teens, in the 19 teens, James Joyce didn't care about the, the American Republican Party. So it's just like, how can you bring sort of anti-Trump rhetoric into an analysis of Ulysses. I really see that as an attitude in search of a textual basis, rather than finding something in the text that you realize is genuinely applicable to the present. I think it's Maureen Dowd's confirmation bias. I think it's what she sets out to find in a text as opposed to what's there. And you're quite right. She's not a literary critic. She mentioned in the op-ed piece that she's going for an MA in English literature. And maybe if she gets that MA, she will approach literature from a sort of more informed perspective. But what I see now is partisan mudslinging in the guise of literary exegesis. And, you know, you also you quote a, uh, another piece. There was a piece in The New Yorker about Ulysses that uh, it was, I think, a lot, a lot more fair toward, toward the book. And there Basically, the uh, the person who wrote about uh, the book said that um, it just just feels like the book is overstuffed. There's too much in it, and that it just uh, it tries to be everything to everyone. Well, you're quite right that the author of that particular piece is someone who is actually a big fan of Ulysses. And at the beginning of her article, she talks about this app that you can set to uh, read out lines from the novel 
and she turns it on and listens to it when she's going to bed and listens to it when she wakes up and absorbs all different passages of the novel. So I think we are definitely talking about a fan. Wait, hang on. There's a Ulysses app? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's an app that she talks about. You can set it to read out lines from the novel and or actually actually to read the entire novel in an incremental way. It's like an audio version of the novel, but you can program it and you can have it roll out uh, certain parts at given times of the day. It's funky. Like like sleep, like, like literary sleep tech. <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. <laughs> yeah, because I can only, I mean, I, I think it's a great, I think it's great actually, but I, I can only imagine how easy it would be to, to, to nap to James Joyce. I mean, it's, it, you know, like you said, Ulysses is a, an extremely dense, and complicated novel. And, it, you know, I, I enjoyed when, when I lived in Philadelphia, I guess we lived there more or less around the same time. They would have a Bloomsday reading, uh, the day, you know, the because Ulysses all takes place in one day uh, in, in Dublin, and they would have a reading of the book on Bloomsday, the day it takes place. And I, 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 I participated in the Bloomsday reading in 2001. You're right, it's an annual event and it's organized by partly by the Rosenbach Museum, which is where the manuscript of Ulysses has been kept for many years. And I read a part of chapter nine of Ulysses on Bloomsday. And it's a wonderful event because people can sign up to read all different passages of the novel. And there are so many different styles of presentation. There, there are so many different approaches to reading Ulysses. You can do so in a very literary way. You can do it in a, in a very performance art type of way. And who knows, maybe we were at the same event. I, I read on Bloomsday way back in 2001. You know, I seem to recall that I also read in that Bloomsday because I was living in Philadelphia back then. I do not remember what passage I read. It was probably fairly racy. Uh, <laughs> I'm guessing they, they might've assigned me something, but yeah, I also read in that event. So, you know, I will admit, like, I am not like Ulysses is not among my favorites, but I, I just I just love that a book retains its its cultural force. A book like this, you know, a book that is, you know, is uh, obscure and strange and in some ways impenetrable continues to uh, to resonate in the culture. I really couldn't have put it better, Neil. I, I think you're 100 percent right. Ulysses, it's 100 years Old, hopefully people will still be reading it another hundred years. I won't. I, I don't think that um, that uh, technology is going to improve to the point where I will get to see Ulysses' 200th anniversary. <laughs> but but we're, we're marking it here. Michael Washburn wrote an excellent piece about the centenary of Ulysses, and it's on Book and Film Globe right now. Michael, we will talk to you soon. Have a great weekend. West correspondent Adam Hirschfelder is back to talk about he talked about uh, Yellowstone with us just a few weeks ago. And now already the Yellowstone extended universe is, is growing in power with the conclusion of the first season of 1883, which is a prequel of sorts. Adam, hello. How are you, Neil? Uh, I, I'm wearing the cowboy hat that I wore during Yellowstone, but I'm a little dustier, a little hungrier. It's a little drier. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, so 1883 is uh, it is a legitimate like old west saga. Uh, it, it's it's set on basically on the Oregon Trail. It's not in Montana, but it starts in Texas. Yeah, it starts uh, kind of near you, near in Fort Worth. And then kind of, you know, it's not the traditional Oregon Trail, although people came up from Texas. Uh, the show does follow from Texas north up through Wyoming and then left towards the coast. Uh, but obviously they stop in Montana, or at least the Duttons do. Uh, some make it to uh, Oregon. A few of the uh, other people on the kind of uh, caravan there on do make it to Oregon, but the uh, Duttons stop uh, in the Paradise Valley of Montana uh, to set the stage uh, for the next uh, prequel, 1932, which I mentioned. So uh, we obviously have to see what happens over the next 40 years in the Paradise Valley. That sort of Texas to Montana thing, that's sort of a lonesome dove territory in some ways. Um, you know, th this occupies the same cultural space. And I feel like, you know, with, with 1883, the, the traditional Western has made a real comeback. Yeah, I mean, you know, Yellowstone was kind of neo-Western, um, but 1883 is kind of the real deal. I mean, uh, or at least, you know, visually and in a lot of ways, you know, the landscapes, uh, the rough and tumble world of the West, the bandits, the killings, interactions with Native Americans, some violent Obviously, but this is, yeah, this is traditional Western and it's really, yeah, incredibly popular. It's definitely tapping in uh, to something powerful. Yeah, these these shows, they, you know, they it's, it's a smart move because they periodically come up, you know, obviously Lonesome Dove, this stuff has resonance. And so I feel like with the Dutton family, you know, it's kind of ambitiously trying to tell the American story. Yeah, no question about that. I mean, I, I I was a little surprised, you know, when I heard about, I mean, oh, when they announced, you know, Paramount with all the spinoffs of 1883 and trying to, you know, create all this content, obviously, for streaming. But you had, you know, this is while 1883 is going on. They announced, you know, 1932. And it was how they described 1932, you know, how the Duttons deal with the uh, Great Depression, Prohibition, you know, these core American historical events. Sheridan's trying to tell this American story from like, you know, Texas outwards. We've had it east to west. There were some pieces of the kind of west to east in the California influence. And now uh, Sheridan's going from <laughs> Texas outward, the American story from Texas, which is interesting. Uh, but he's doing it uh, with some, you know, updated ways. Uh, it's not the traditional, maybe not the traditional Texas story because he's doing this in very, some very modern ways. Right. Well, they're like you pointed out in the piece uh, that he's at least semi-progressive when it comes to the way he's dealing with Native Americans. Very much so. It really stands out. And I've seen a couple other pieces out there that mention it. He's being very, very deliberate about telling uh, the story. Now, to be clear, this is still white Caucasians going west. It's not told from the Native point of view. But in the two programs, some people want to take 1883 as its own thing. And Sheridan's out there saying, you know, I want 18, you know my spinoffs also to be watched by people who don't watch the whole thing. I don't necessarily believe that. So if you look at the, you know, the two programs, he's really showing, you know, Native Americans and all of human complexity in a way, I, you know, I don't remember seeing much of. I mean, we had Dances with Wolves and interestingly, Graham Greene shows up in the final scene of 1883. But I, there is no question Sheridan is telling a different Native American story. It's quite, quite deliberate. Right. Although the cat, like you mentioned, the main cast is still largely white. I mean, we have a yes. we have Tim McGraw and Faith Hill. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess Garth, I guess Garth Brooks and Fifty Yearwood weren't available. Um, you, right, you figure you figure some of these people can start popping up. You know, as I mentioned, you had Tom Hanks, his wife Rita Wilson, Billy Bob Thornton. I mean, yeah. the cast of characters are going to start showing up. You know, it's going to be a big thing in people's careers if you show up in the you know Dutton universe somehow. You can Sandler, just see a little Adam Sandler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll throw a little Adam Sandler. Um, all right, but the breakout star is this uh, young woman named Isabel May, I believe. She yeah, Isabel May. She plays the uh, 18-year-old daughter of, uh, yep. of Tim McGraw and Faith Hill's character. We won't reveal her, her arc or her fate here, but yep. uh, although you do in the article, thanks a lot. <laughs> but she's been getting incredibly good reviews, and in a lot of ways, she's the main character. Very much so, and she, she's the narrator. She narrates a lot of the uh, what's going on and gives the context to you know each of the scenes. And what's interesting is you know or you're shown – what happens to her character in the opening scene of the whole thing in episode one. And like you spend 10 episodes wondering, was that opening scene a dream sequence? Was it for real? And all this kind of thing. So it's interesting. So your eyes and everything are very focused on her. And yeah, Sheridan does some, you know, plays with some camera tricks and, you know, Elsa is, you know, blonde, blue eyes, you know, beautiful woman, you know, it's a coming of age story for her and how she grows as a woman. And you read some of the stuff where Sheridan say, you know, he wanted her to symbolize America. Uh, he saw something obviously in her and I can, you know, could see him talk about her, that she was a you know, real special actress, really embodied the role uh, in a lot of ways. So she's got a big future. Speaking of embodying the role, Sam Elliott, He's the trail guide, right? The guy who guides the family from Texas to Montana. And, you know, obviously, like, if you have a Western with Sam Elliott in it, it gives it this sort of air of authenticity. And I just wanted to talk about this real quickly because um, there's this hilarious controversy that came up this week where Sam Elliott <laughs> criticized Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, basically saying that these are just like a bunch of guys walking around wearing chaps. <laughs> like, they got leather chaps, they got furry chaps. You know, he even criticized the sort of the gay themes of it. Uh, just that they are a little, little over the top. I will say, like, The Power of the Dog is not a good movie. It's not fun <laughs> to watch. It's dour. It's depressing. And it, it hates Westerns and it hates the West. And then, so he has a point there, even if maybe he's kind of maybe the wrong messenger in some ways. I wonder what he thought of Brokeback Mountain. For some reason, he was on record as, as praising Brokeback Mountain. Like, why, why is Sam Elliott always on record giving his opinions about Western content? I don't get and, it. And, you know, this was well-timed, you know. I mean, he was talking about 1883 and this kind of walked, except into the culture war. But what's interesting is how much Western serves as template for discussions about America. And it goes through trends, but this is a real big time. Maybe it's caught up with all political stuff, red, blue, all that kind of nonsense. But this was just... How how people are portrayed in Westerns is really just kind of like this gloss for how people talk about each other in American society. It's, re it's really interesting. You know, we grew up with these Westerns 40, 50 years ago, and, and now they've become this huge jumping off point. Westerns were kind of the first great American genre, yes. genre and were widely imitated by Europe in the 60s and 70s. And then now there's Westerns, there's revisionist Westerns, but there's like violent right-wing Westerns, there's like left-wing anti-imperialist Westerns. It's a sort of endless template. It's kind of nice to see like a Western universe being created in this world where like all of our content is so sci-fi and fantasy. Very, very much so. And I think I saw NBC is now going to be creating some kind of 
uh, streaming thing followed on ranches in Texas and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I presume that's going to fail. But uh, 1883, uh, you know, yeah, definitely, uh, you know, brings to life more, you know, a bit more than Yellowstone, that traditional uh, Western, I will say, you know, uh, have appreciation more for the art form. And Sheridan's doing a damn good job. And boy, does Paramount must think so, because they, they, are, they are pushing him to do more and more content around this. Yeah, for sure. All right, Adam, thank you so much. We'll catch you. Uh, when 1983 debuts. <laughs> yes. All right. Later. See you, Neil. Riddle me this. What is three hours long and very, very dark and kind of pretentious, but also kind of not pretentious at the same time. Why? It's the new movie, The Batman. The Batman is on screens now in theaters only for a short time. And Stephen Garrett has reviewed it for Book and Film Globe this week. And I've also seen The Batman. So we're going to have a a little Batman chat. Hello, Stephen. Hello. So, all right. You're the film critic. You're the official film critic. I'm, I'm kind of like a second, second string. I'm like the bench film critic, the, the sort of weird guy you bring off when you off the bench when you get tired. So you liked the Batman. I think it's very good at what it's trying to do. You and I, during our lifetimes, have seen many different types of Batmen, from hilarious and campy to grim to inspiring to cheeky to, you know, it's it runs a gamut. This one just is relentlessly dark and sad. I mean, of course, Nirvana is playing at the beginning of the movie. Like, it's that kind of movie. Bruce Wayne is this close to slitting his wrists, except he finds an outlet to, like, pummel criminals at night and so finds a cause. I mean, it's just, it's really dark and dour. And I don't know if that's everybody's cup of tea. It's the most emo Batman ever. But it's good at what it is. It's very good at doing that. Like, I think Matt Reeves needs a hug. I mean, you know, the writer, the director of this movie, you know, I, I think is a little too enthralled with shallow focus shots that are tight and odd angles, a lot of GoPro angles, which can be fun. But then also it's a little exhausting. At least three hours. It doesn't need to be three hours. Have a little restraint. Show a little economy. They could have shaved 40 minutes off of it. Yeah. You could, we could have had, you know, a few fewer scenes of Batman rifling through filing cabinets. Yeah. A few fewer scenes of Batman walking, you know, through uh, the Penguins nightclub. Here's what I think. I feel like, you remember Superman Returns, the Brandon Ralph Superman? <laughs> yeah, <movie>? I do. <laughs> this movie is, is certainly better than that. It's certainly more artistic than that. But that movie felt like, you know, whoever made that movie took the old Christopher Reeves... Brian Singer. Brian Singer. Brian Singer. He took the old Christopher Reeves Superman movies and just put them in a blender, and and they just came out by committee. I feel like this, The Batman, is kind of like a weird fan fiction interpretation of uh, The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Returns. I mean, the Riddler's plot and the end result of his plot isn't that different than what the Joker and Bane pull off. The tone is just a tad darker, not that much darker. And, you know, just in general, like I just felt like Robert Pattinson's performance and also Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman. They had no chemistry. They were very wooden. I know that the Batman Returns with Michael Keaton and Michelle Pfeiffer was, a, to say the least, a very different kind of movie. Than that. <laughs> That's a fun kind of dark. They were sexy together and, and, you know, they had great chemistry. Mm -hmm. You know, I will say there are a couple of things I liked about it. I thought that um, 
I thought that uh, Colin Farrell's uh, take on the penguin was actually like the best thing in the movie. He's the only person who seemed to be enjoying himself. Uh, yes, exactly. I wouldn't say he had any, he didn't have jokes per se. He had a few laugh lines though. The whole, that whole, that, there's that scene where they, they zip tie his, his, uh, his feet together and he has to waddle around. Yeah. I was like, finally he's waddling. That's great. And he's like, world's greatest detectives. He's having fun. Yeah. Yeah. He was having fun. And, um, you know, Paul Dano, uh, Dano, right? Not Dano, not Paul Dano. as Dano. Dano. Well, Paul Dano as the hey, potato, potato, Paul as the Riddler, um, I wouldn't say he was fun to watch, but, you know, he was at least he was weird. You know, he was like agreeably weird and creepy. Yeah. His scenes had had some some zip to them. But like, you know, Batman and Catwoman, like they kept kissing. And I was like, why? They don't like each other. No chemistry. Zoe Kravitz was, you know, I mean, she's obviously a you know beautiful Hollywood starlet, but she was, I thought, you know, quite uninspiring as as Catwoman, as a Catwoman goes better than Anne Hathaway. Yeah, I think it's a little better than Hathaway. Uh, but uh, no, it's true. When 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 she goes in to kiss Batman, like it's it's not motivated by any sort of smoldering sexual attraction between the two of them. It feels very like obligatory. They're very sexless. Um, I will also say, and I, I didn't think Jeffrey Wright was particularly interesting as Commissioner Gordon is a very flat performance, particularly like given how good Gary Oldman was in the role in the Christopher Nolan movies. You can't, you know, you really, you can't look past that shit. You, that's the thing is you can't watch a Batman movie and not be like, well, <laughs> you have to be able to compare it to the other, the other Batman movies, you know? And, um, you know, Matt Reeves, he made the, um, the Planet of the Apes trilogy, the, the new one. And, and he completely just, like, butchered that legend. Oh. I <laughs> well, I think he transformed it. He made his own thing. It's, it's a very different. It doesn't have the same kind of pop, you know, sociopolitical vibe that the originals did. It's not fun. His movies are not fun to watch. They make, They're not. I'm, I'm not saying a movie has to be fun. It wasn't my birthday party. <laughs> but it's like, why take these beloved pop cultural franchises and strip them of all their joy. Look, I think clearly DC and Mar uh, Warner Brothers have said, Marvel and Disney have monopolized the family-friendly approach to superheroes. Like, Spidey is always going to be a friendly neighborhood guy. And DC is like, you know what? We're going to be your older brother's cool comic book, darker and edgier and like, whatever. That's not even true. Like, Shazam was very family-friendly. Oh, that movie yeah. That movie was quite delightful to watch. And Wonder Woman, it's a little more fun. Yeah, it's a little more positive. And then Aquaman, you know, like I, a lot of people hate James Wan's Aquaman. I, right. You know, to me, it created, the, it, it contained the single greatest uh, uh, image in cinematic history, which was the giant octopus playing the drums before <laughs> the battle. The greatest moment in movie history. Even better than the end of the first act of Gone with the Wind, as far as, far as I'm concerned. So I don't know. I just feel like, I mean, I understand this is Batman. He's the world's greatest detective and all that. But I don't know. You grew up reading Batman comic books, right? And watching the old show, right? Well, I mean, I grew up watching the TV show, you know, which I thought was a lot of fun. I didn't really, you know, I was, I was, I didn't really, I was kind of agnostic when it came to comic yeah. books. I could read them. Well, I was a bat. I grew yeah. up a Batman fan. And to me, Batman is, should be about goofy fun, you know? And that's why, I, that's why I love the Lego Batman movie. <laughs> that was, that was one of the goofiest, most yeah. fun movies ever made. That's a good point. It just took the whole Batman mythology and just, just, just gave it a, 
Goosed its nipples. Yeah, for goosed its bat nipples. So, well, so did you like Joel Schumacher's take? No. Because that really was like the campy. Those movies are just, I mean, those movies are beyond bad, though. Yeah. You I know? missed a freeze. I hate it when people talk during the movie. You know, it's <laughs> like, <laughs> you know they, they really, they did Batgirl very poorly in, in those movies. Yeah, those, those movies are bad. The Val Kilmer and George Clooney Batman are just bad. I know. I, I know you gave the Batman four stars, but. Hey, look, rating systems, personally, I find them a little constrictive and reductive, like literally, right? And so I feel like, how am I judging this movie? I'm judging it on what its own uh, aspirations are. I think it wanted to be this dark, somber, operatic take. And, you know, it mostly succeeded at doing that. Is that my preference for this character? Not really. You know, and there have been so many iterations that like, why not? I didn't mind the first hour or so while the mystery was sort of unspooling and then it just kept going. And then like they're, they, 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 they arrest the Riddler and then we still have another hour to go after they catch the bad guy. Yeah. 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 I'm like, really? There's a third act to this. What? More like a fifth act or a seventh act. Like, Seriously, there's just too much. You're absolutely right. I was having, first of all, the first 10 minutes or so I thought was like absolutely thrilling. Like the mood, the atmosphere, the heavy rain, you know, all that kind of stuff. The weird Halloween costumes that everyday citizens had, like, you know, his creepy taxi driver voiceover. I was, I I bought it all, you know, that was like fantastic. But you can only stay in that kind of grim territory for a certain amount of time before you just feel fatigued. Well, and then there, there were just some moments too where like, like, we have to catch the Riddler. There was some weird stiff writing in there. It was just, it was too long. And again, I felt like Catwoman was, there, there's a lot of reveals about her character that just don't seem to make a lot of sense. And, you know, what is she doing? Where, what, why does that, why does she care about this Russian prostitute? You know, it's like, well, it's her girlfriend. I mean, she says at one point, honey, you oh, know, her girl, oh, I didn't even, I don't know. I didn't even get certainly a roommate, possibly a girlfriend, you know, that there's an intense relationship between them, emotional relationship. Yeah. But there was no relationship. Like we didn't actually see any relationship. Yeah. You know what I mean? Anyway, at the end of the day, we have to, we have to do our ranking of Batman. That's what we're going to, we're going to finish this off. All right, let's do it. How many movies you got written down? I have nine Batman. It sounds like Lego Batman takes the top. Surprise. Uh, no, no. My, first, my my number one was Michael Keaton. Oh, the OG. The OG. Not really the OG. The OG reboot. Yeah, the OG reboot. Like, you know, he 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 does it. There's not a ton of gravitas. I tell you, man, I, I have to ding it always for the uh, embarrassing scene where Jack Nicholson is prancing around to Prince music playing on a boombox. No, I don't mean the movie. I mean... <laughs> I mean... I was talking about... I'm yeah. talking about the guy in the suit. The guy in the suit. Okay, okay. Michael Keaton is my favorite Batman. Will Arnett, the Lego Batman, is my number two. That's fair. My number three is a, is a Batman you hadn't even heard of when we were talking before. That's Kevin Conroy, who does who did the voice of Batman in Batman the Animated Series, which to my mind is the quintessential Batman on film. What about the Joker? Oh, well, the the the, the greatest Joker, of, well, the best Joker of all time is Heath Ledger's Joker. I mean, he won a, he won a freaking Oscar for it. But after that, I mean, so did Joaquin, dude. Joaquin was also great as Joker, and then, but but also Mark Hamill uh, in Batman the Animated Series is the Joker, and he's great. You know, I mean, the worst Joker is obviously Jared Jared Leto's Joker, but Jack, you know, and Jack Nicholson, (laughs) Jack Jack Nicholson is almost as bad. But anyway, so it's like, and then fourth, fourth, I have Adam. Wait, 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 Caesar, where's Caesar Romero? Oh God, Caesar Romero, too. Oh, I don't know. 
I would say. I think he's solidly in the middle. Solidly in the middle. middle. I mean, for the time, the perfect Joker. Better than than Jared Leto. Probably better than, I would say better than Nicholson, for sure. I'd say. Uh, So I have Adam West as fourth. Christian Bale as fifth, which isn't really fair to Christian Bale, who's probably the, who's definitely the best actor of the bunch. But, you know, but I just, I just don't love those movies. Then Ben Affleck, then Val Kilmer, then Robert Pattinson, and then George Clooney. Wow. Second to last. Yeah, I thought he was horrible. I thought he was stoic, which is to say they didn't give him much to do, and he kind of let the costume act for him. He was fine in the costume. The costume looked cool as always. Not great when he was like walking around with this smeared eyeshadow or whatever the hell they had. (laughs) You know what? It's funny. I don't disagree, but I don't look to my Batman as being like, like great performers or, you know, having great emotional arcs to what they're doing. You know, I think that's much more about the directorial intent than what the, the actor brings to it, you know? Like, I don't think it was kind of like George Clooney embarrassing or Val Kilmer embarrassing. Actually, neither of those guys, it wasn't embarrassing. It was just kind of bland pretty boys. And I think Pattinson is definitely not that. Like, it's funny how really not pretty he is. Like, I think he looks very pale and dour. Of course, there's no sunlight in this movie. Everything's overcast or at night. The whole movie is pale and dour, really. Yeah. That's the Batman. Your mileage may vary. Steven liked it. (laughs) I liked it for what it was trying to do. I think it mostly succeeded at that. But also too long. The Batman in theaters now. It's it's uh it's nighttime. Go see it. <laughs> All right, thanks Stephen for listening to me rant at you about Batman for a long time. You're very patient. And thank you for reviewing The Batman for us this week. Also, thanks to Adam Hirschfelder for talking to me about 1883 and the Taylor Sheridan Duttonverse. And to Michael Washburn for talking about the 100th anniversary of James Joyce's Ulysses. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. If you want to know where to find us, just look up in the sky. There'll be the Book and Film Globe signal. You'll see it, and then you can follow that to the website. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV nearly every day, and we will be back on this podcast next week to talk about the culture some more. Thank you for joining us. We will talk to you soon. Catwomen? How many Catwomen are there? Pfeiffer, Kit, Newmar. Kravitz, Hathaway. Dude, you forgot one. You forgot one. Oh, Halle Berry. Is that rock bottom right there? Oh, no. She was better than Anne Hathaway. Original Production.